Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to talk about some of the TV writing news of the past month. But first, let's review five of your teasers in our penultimate Paper Tease session. As a quick reminder, these paper teases have been submitted by our listeners for us to review the first eight or so pages of their scripts, which is their, you know, the teaser or cold open. And the first one is actually from one of our patrons for the exclusive patron paper tease submissions. So this is Motel Verse by Dallas Rico. And in Motel Verse, at a house in the suburbs of Austin, Jade says goodbye to her husband for the night. Shortly after, Athena, Jade's lesbian lover, somewhat intoxicated, shows up and tries to hook up with Jade. Jade says they cannot do this anymore and points to her wedding ring. Athena leaves, spurned, and as she's being driven home in an Uber, stops and gets out at a cemetery. She jumps the fence and goes and confesses to her mother's grave that she tried but Jade said no and is despondent. A dark figure then emerges from a chapel nearby, holding an otherworldly skeleton key that emanates a frosty blue light and streams of vapor. He spots Athena, realizes she's asleep, and slips away. What did you think of Motel Verse? Yeah, so I thought it was really interesting. I think I was invested in the character drama going on with Jade and Athena, and I think it sets up a good ongoing conflict between, you know, wanting something that you can't have and, you know, feeling like you're stuck in that kind of situation. So I thought that was a good way to start it. And then as it kind of got further in, it was an interesting turn to suddenly have this kind of supernatural element thrown onto us. Yeah, what are your thoughts about that? I had similar thoughts to you. Uh, I really enjoyed the character aspect of it, uh, especially when you're front-loaded and you get a good sense of the dynamics between those two people. I thought it was very interesting. Now, to your point about the the turn at the end, uh, that is probably my one sort of note of criticism would be that the turn is so sudden and not highlighted in the prose or in the script in a substantial way for me that it really differentiated what was happening before from that moment. So my one comment would be specifically in that moment to either capitalize the frosty blue light or at least point to it being completely different from anything that we've read so far. Yeah, I think that there needs needs to be an element in there of perhaps hinting at or setting up something maybe as she's coming into the graveyard that we see like a weird blue light off in the distance and we're like starting to build this tension towards that and then we have this reveal afterwards. I think that would kind of like help pay that off a little bit. But right now it just feels like a little bit out of nowhere. And then the thing that feels a little weird to me again is that Athena doesn't even notice this happen. She's kind of like asleep or drunk in front of the, the grave and this guy just kind of shows up and walks off. So it feels like it doesn't have any real impact on the plot. And I think what I want to see in a teaser is something that is affecting the story in an active way. I agree. In terms of the actual reveal of it all, I would say that I don't think the issue is the turn in of itself. It's more so if it is magical realism show, then there needs to be a sense of what that entails on a larger spectrum, especially when it comes to Athena, which is, I think, your bump in terms of uh, how Athena doesn't really react. Yeah. And because it's such a disconnect in tone and even genre from what we have been setting up this whole time, it's 
it is just a little too much of a disconnect to suddenly throw that at the audience without like leading us into it or showing why that is there or needs to be there. Like I could see a world in which maybe Athena is at the grave of her mother and she sees some weird thing coming out of this crypt. And as this guy comes out, she like pretends to be asleep or whatever. At least then it's inciting something in the plot. And even if you want to leave it as a sort of like a passive element of the screenplay, there's ways of highlighting it throughout or at least in the scene in a way that uh, distinguishes itself from the rest of the prose. As we pointed out earlier, it sort of blends in with the rest of the element of the prose, especially at that point where the dark figure has that otherworldly skeleton key. That's such a different thing that that probably should be capitalized, for example. I mean, it's just ways visually on the page to distinguish it from the rest. Yeah. And in terms of what makes us want to read on versus not, that supernatural element coming out at the end really does capture the reader's attention and makes you wonder what it's all about. But if it was just executed a little more differently and, and capitalized upon that reader's interest and showed how that was going to go through into the rest of the script rather than him just showing up and disappearing right away. I'd make us more inclined to want to see what's going to happen next. Definitely. I mean, this is the key piece that differentiates this show from any other show and this teaser from any other teaser is it's not just a character drama between these two women. It's there's something otherworldly going on and there's something mysterious and obscure that ties to one of the lead characters. So emphasizing that and leaning into what makes this teaser different from the other ones in that prose and in that moment, I think we'll push it even further. And our next teaser is Inept by Maddie Mendez, and it is a comedy. So the summary of this is Reese, a man in his early 20s, is notified of a match on a dating app. In his apartment, he starts to cook pasta while on the phone with his friend Michaela as they talk about recommendations for facelifts and soul cycle workouts. We then go to his workplace, a bullpen in a law firm, and he is condescendingly accosted by a co-worker, Tyrion, about a case. Michaela then calls Reese to get his opinion on the soul cycle workout he did that morning. What are your thoughts on Inept? So I enjoyed the comedy in a vacuum. Each little moments were funny in of themselves. But what I was missing from this teaser was a sense of a story and plot and drive. As it stands, it was a little bit of a melange of vignettes that aren't connected to each other. So for example, you've got this main character at the beginning being matched with a guy and then he cooks dinner. So you're assuming, oh, is this for a date? But no, he's just making pasta for himself. And then he chats to his friend about starting a workout routine. We assume, okay, so then the next scene is going to be about this soul cycle, but no, we actually see him at his workplace. It was a little bit of a disjointed uh, ensemble of scenes. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And like you said, I think there's uh, some fun lines in there. The character voices are interesting, but yeah, it's, it's hard for us to ground ourselves in the plot and understand what's happening. And I did find myself kind of trying to latch onto something, but not understanding. And, and part of that for me too, just going to the character voices part of it is that I think at times the writer is is trying very hard to make these characters funny and clever. And, you know, it, it, it does work, but some of it doesn't feel as naturalistic as it could. There are certain words that are thrown in for the sake of making them sound cooler or more interesting. You know, it's sort of like a, I guess they're like Juno-isms, like trying to imitate that voice of the Diablo Cody thing. You know, there's a couple of lines that just kind of like, halted the flow of the conversation for me as I was trying to be like, oh, is that really something they would say? Or wait, what are they talking about? Things like, she's like, I'll pick you up in the morning. He's like, you may try, you may fail. And nevertheless, she persisted. It just doesn't feel as naturalistic. There are words thrown in there like divergent and populist that don't feel like something two friends in their mid-20s would just be chatting about. And even that kind of bleeds over into the, the description on the page sometimes. Like there's a line where it says, he shoves a fork full of carbohydrates down the hatch and stands. His abrupt ascension causes his chair to screech behind them. When you you could have just said he takes a bite and stands up. 
I had literally the same note about the same exact sentence. So I guess that's why we're on this podcast together. I absolutely echo your issue with the prose being overwritten, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's ways of conveying the same imagery in an impactful way in a short, punchy description straight to the point as opposed to elongating what is happening and sort of overwriting every single word to get to that same image. Yeah, exactly. And I understand what the the author is going for. Like you want to inject your voice into it and you want to make it fun and different, but you need to pick your battles in where it's important to do that and where it's literally just him putting pasta in his mouth and standing up from his chair. Right. And even in those reveal moments, uh, at the end, it says, fortuitously, we pen to reveal this funny moment. Uh, Now, I get the intent is to play on what just happened and sort of editorialize what is going on in the prose, but the comedic effect isn't as effective as just actually revealing that pen out or that cut to this thing happening, uh, since it is about what the viewer is experiencing, not the reader. So imitate what is happening and what we're trying to experience in the prose. Right. Ideally in comedy, you should be able to present an image or a situation in the story that regardless of how you communicate it to the reader is funny. It doesn't matter if you say it in the most simple, plain way possible. You know, it's the elements that are going to be appearing on the screen that are going to make people laugh rather than the way you present it in the prose. And it can go too far in the other direction and you distract from that too much with the prose and then it softens the blow of of the comedy. Yeah, absolutely. And on the micro side, there were a couple of typos, for example, on page four in the dialogue, as well as an apostrophe on the first page that doesn't need to be there. Or in page five, when the dialogue says affecting instead of affecting, Uh, that's a little bit of a, a difference there. Also, in terms of the production, in the first scene, there's an insert about Rice tapping a notification on his dating app. You can just leave that sentence as is without adding insert because this isn't a production draft. It's about orienting what the viewer sees, not necessarily what the production is going to be doing. Yeah, I noticed that uh, in the phone call with Michaela at the end, the off screen next to her name disappears, which made me think she had showed up in the scene and was talking to him or something. Like he rounds a corner and she's there, but that wasn't what happened. I think he just forgot to put the off screen for the rest of their conversation. And there was a, a sentence on that last page or second last page where he pivots to face the tempered glass wall panels so he may look into the firm's conference room, which, and then like the sentence just ends on a full stop. Like if you were putting a colon to do a reveal maybe, but it, it just felt like he hadn't finished writing that sentence. Um, So those are the the micro notes. All right. So what would make us want to read on versus not here? Well, my main takeaway is that I wanted more focus, not just on the characters, but also on the story. I feel like it needs a little bit more plot and a better understanding of what is going on and what is going to propel this episode forward uh, than just this series of funny situations. Yeah, I agree completely. I think your characters and your conversations can be as funny as you want, but if there's, there's no story drawing us in, then it's hard to be like, yes, I want to keep turning these pages. And to that point, maybe it was just me, but I didn't quite understand what happened at the end where he's on the phone with Michaela talking about there's a work emergency. And she's like, what is it? And he looks into a conference room full of people in suits and says, there it is, or, you know, whatever the line is. And because we didn't have that thread of the story, I didn't understand what that meant. Like, is it just, oh, here's another day at work and with a bunch of assholes who are going to be telling me to do stuff like this other guy, or was there genuinely some sort of emergency work situation? I I didn't understand. I did assume that as well, that it was just the sheer absurdity of the amount of work that he's going to have to do. But again, it's not conveyed. If the idea is not conveyed in a succinct, simple way that we can either laugh at or understand, then it's going to lack an impact on the page. 
Yeah, so there's definitely potential there, but it really needs to latch onto the story and give us something to hold on to to carry us through to hang all the comedy off of. The next script is called Rogue Galaxy by J.R. Curry, and it is a sci-fi, maybe comedy, maybe drama, dramedy. And in Rogue Galaxy, we open on a ship exploding and a man named Strider holding a boy in a shuttle telling him it will be okay. We then cut to Strider being held prisoner and tortured on the Republic Guard space station. His team, Marcy and Rucker and Alfonsi, break in and rescue him. As they get back to their ship, they're hit by a torpedo, damaging an engine and causing their camouflage to flicker out, forcing them to land on the nearest planet, which we read from Strider's facial expression as being a very bad thing. As they fly away, we see a tracker that has been placed on their ship. What did you think of Rogue Galaxy? Yeah, so I love sci-fi and I'm always excited to see new takes on it and, you know, people creating their own sci-fi worlds and things like that. So I was interested to see what this one was going to do with it. And and I think there were actually some cool, interesting little elements and different phraseology that were chosen in this world that, that did give it its own little unique spin. However, overall, it felt a little bit like a generic sci-fi action sequence to me in that you're breaking into a space station, taking out the guards, rescuing a prisoner, even as they fly away with a tracker on them, like that's a move straight out of Star Wars with the Millennium Falcon leaving the, you know, the Death Star. So I, I guess I was just looking for something a little more to ground us in what is unique about this world and what makes this sci-fi different from the millions of others that are out there yeah definitely i mean the action in of itself is fun it's always fun to see people shooting at each other but to your point there's nothing proprietary about this world or this specific teaser that distinguishes itself from anything we've seen before from star wars to stargate to star trek even uh, so even from a logistical perspective i was struggling a little bit to understand what was going on in a narrative perspective for example the episode opens on the main character reassuring this boy as their shuttle is about to explode potentially but then we cut to him being a prisoner which i assumed was oh i guess so we cut to black because these uh, guards are going to capture strider and take him prisoner but it looks like it might be a flashback uh, because the boy has nothing to do with the rest of the teaser so it's a little bit confusing on a logistical perspective yeah i was a little unclear on that as well my original thought was that oh this is happening immediately after and he's been captured on this yep. thing but then if that were the case there should have been some involvement of the boy and like wait before we leave we have to go go save my kid or whatever it happens to be. But it may have just been something that happened in the past. And this was him trying to break back into a station to find out where this kid was or something. So that could have been labeled more clearly on the script if it was a flashback. And from an emotional perspective, I kind of wanted to stay with Strider all the way through. I don't think you need to cut away to his other buddies and the rest of the ship who we don't know yet at that point, as opposed to staying with Strider as he tries to escape and then the other characters breaking in and saving him right at the last moment. Again, it's maybe a little bit of a trope, but it's better for me at least than seeing these other characters who I don't really know and are not introduced in a clear enough way as opposed to Strider. Yeah, I think it would help put us more in a mindset of empathy with Strider as we're like, oh no, is he really going to be hurt here? Like, how is he possibly going to escape? And then, you know, we can get into that stuff. And it would help establish him more as the the main protagonist and put us on his side. Uh, in terms of the characters, I did have a few kind of thoughts there. Strider's character introduction, there was a bit of that that kind of stuck out to me as not that relevant in the moment or something that you couldn't tell and i know you can take liberties with these character descriptions but like he said he disguises his damaged past with chronic sarcasm and a fondness for chocolate 
you know, that's cute. But I, I, and then like they do work the chocolate in later, but there was something about that that didn't seem appropriate for a prisoner who was waking up on the floor of this room. I, I didn't see how that was a fitting character description in that moment, I guess. Yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying. Uh, in my mind, you could play that description in that scene with the guard because that scene is meant to be sort of a, a funny, quippy interaction between Strider and this pompous guard. So if you play up that kind of element and levity in the discourse, then you can definitely empathize with that character in that way. Right. And that's the thing is we do get a lot of this chronic sarcasm from him in the dialogue. So in that case, it's probably not even necessary to put that in his character description because we're going to see that Mm -hmm. coming out pretty evidently. Maybe you give us something else that gives us an insight into him. I meant more in terms of the content of that quip. I didn't mean the idea of being quippy specifically. Sure, sure, sure. I'm I'm just saying that if it's evident from the character immediately in the scene, then maybe you use the character description to give us a little bit of something else. Uh, In terms of his kind of sarcasm and quips, I think occasionally it would veer too much into glibness where it wasn't funny enough in and of itself to justify the constant quips over and over again. I think you need to be careful with how often you use them and and the the moments at which you use them. The the one about him throwing the water on him and he's like, mommy, I don't want to take a bath. It felt like it was too immediate for me. Like I'd rather be situated in the scene and then he starts kind of working up his sarcasm, whereas it just felt like every line was trying to be, you know, a punchline. Do you have anything in terms of micro notes on the page? Yeah, a couple of micro notes. Just to go back on the logistics of it all, if that initial scene is meant to be a flashback of some kind, I would contextualize it as such in the slug line, especially after we cut to black and fade into space. I would, again, create a slug line to make sure that we understand that we are now in space because the whole sequence makes it as if it all takes place in the shuttle, even though the pros clarifies, oh, wait, we're actually in space. But that's the point of a slug line is to differentiate spatially where we are. And I would also capitalize the characters and the names, uh, for example, Strider, when he's introduced in the teaser. But what would make us want to read on? Structurally, this is an effective teaser because we've set up this exciting action sequence with, uh, you know, a character being rescued and then their ship is damaged and this plot momentum is pushing us towards, oh, no, we've got to go land on this planet. And we know that that's a bad thing. And they have a tracker on them. So there are plenty of leads that are being buried within this teaser for us to pull plot out for the rest of the thing. So in that respect, I think that, you know, it would make me curious to see, well, why is this planet so dangerous? And then what's going to happen with the tracker they're going to be followed and attacked again so i think it did a good enough job of that that i would be curious to see what would what happen next there definitely i feel like the key takeaway here is that on the plot level we have what we need there's a lot of momentum there in terms of the narrative and the characters driving to that planet what is missing for me is that element of why here why now with this specific character and what are we going to do after and why are we following him in this moment what differentiates him from any other sci-fi character before him so if i have that then i would feel that the teaser is unique enough. Yeah, I agree. I think for me, that's the one thing that could really elevate this teaser is giving us that that true uniqueness of why this sci-fi world and these people and uh, how is it going to be different from all the other sci-fi that's ever come before. And our next teaser is Diabolical by Ranier Murillo. And it is a drama. So in rural Cuba, we follow a terrified boy as he exits a church uh, with inhuman growls and screams coming out of it. Inside, we find Sister Marjorie as she assists Father Turner in an exorcism of a possessed woman. As Marjorie hands Turner a crucifix, the possessed woman breaks through her restraints and eviscerates the priest. The possessed woman leaps at Marjorie, and Marjorie grabs the metal crucifix and impales the woman, killing her. The Cuban boy from earlier appears in the doorway, and we learn that his mother was the possessed woman who just died. As she comforts the child, a strange hiss is heard in the area. 
The boy suddenly strikes at Marjorie with a crucifix, revealing that he is now the one who's possessed. The two fight, and Marjorie ends up turning the crucifix towards the boy, impaling him. The possessed boy erupts in flames with fire spreading across the church at unnatural speed. What were your thoughts on Diabolical? Well, overall, I thought that the imagery was very visceral. Uh, the action is possessed, no pun intended. I thought it was very well executed. Now, my big fear is that this whole sequence is just a series of cool shots with little emotional substance uh, because I wanted more emotion out of the scene where Marjorie kills that boy, especially when you have this woman impaling a child, even though the child is possessed. It is a powerful moment that kind of seemed to be discarded and shrugged aside just for that cool visual of the boy being engulfed in flames. And as we know, exorcisms are not really uncommon on television and movies. So that's kind of the thing that was missing for me was that emotional connection with those characters. Yeah, totally. I think that the thing that did elevate, and like you said, it's very well written on the page. I like the action, the pacing. But the thing that elevated this in terms of what haven't we seen before is this possessed child. I haven't seen that as much in the exorcism stuff. And I, I would love if you know we had to sit there and confront the emotional reality of a woman having to basically murder a six-year-old child because they're possessed with a demon. I think that would really elevate that whole scene. Absolutely. And I feel like then it would lessen sort of the ridicule of having a little boy actually attacking this woman. It depends on the execution on the screen, but there's definitely this risk that it's a little bit over the top. My one other comment would be that even though the whole sequence is very evocative and very compelling, I do wonder how it fits within the overall picture, especially at the end of the teaser when it says it's difficult to imagine how anyone could have survived. I'm assuming that hints at the fact that one of these people, perhaps the uh, spirit perhaps the boy, perhaps the sister has survived. Uh, so I kind of wanted a little bit more of a tease of what comes next. Yeah. And I think that ties into, you know, what makes us want to read on versus not, but I agree. It seems to set itself up to be almost a self-contained thing where everyone died and this is just something that happened in the past. And maybe whatever happens after that, you know, just reflects on that and has something to do with it in a more abstract way. But I think that the, the wording of that right there, you know, um, be surprised if anyone survived kind of thing does seem to suggest that, yeah, the boy is still alive or the, the nun or something like that. And maybe once we get into the script, we're going to pick up uh, from that character. If you lean into the emotion and the dynamic between this woman having to murder a child, that in of itself is a powerful image and a powerful moment that sets that teaser apart from anything that comes before. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you wouldn't even necessarily need to have the whole church exploding into flames if it was just a woman being forced to right. impale a child with a crucifix and then the demon goes away, but the child's dead and she's just there sobbing and you go to the teaser. I'm like, wow, like what's going to happen after this? So. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of a crucifix, what is our next teaser? The next one is Evangelist by Seth Jurgen, and it's a drama. And in Evangelist, Norman and Evelyn, two missionaries in Nigeria in the 1960s, land in a small town where they meet the people and begin to perform baptisms and do their good work. After seeing a pregnant woman, it's implied that Evelyn and Norman have been unable to conceive their own child, and this is a painful reminder for both of them. That night, Evelyn looks at a drawing given to her of herself and Norman surrounded by children. Norman and Evelyn then make love in the hut. Later, Norman gets up to find the villagers partaking in a ceremony where they drink some kind of pale, milky liquid and dance and chant and so forth. Norman is forced to drink the liquid, and as he trips, he encounters a strange woman whom he follows to a hill where he finds a baby, but no sign of the woman. Disembodied whispers chant, the child of Zion. He takes the baby back to his wife, Evelyn, which is where the teaser ends. 
what did you think of Evangelist? Yeah, I thought this was a, a, a strong teaser. And the thing that I found interesting about it is that for almost the entire thing, there was no dialogue. We're being led through, you know, the introduction of the town and these people and everything they meet. I think the one time anyone says anything is right near the end. Norman calls out hello when the baby is there to see if anyone's there. But by and large, this is all communicated through description and action on the page. And I thought that the the description action was quite well written and that the pacing uh, made good use of the white space and kept our attention. I definitely concur to all your points. I feel like the prose is very well written. The imageries are very evocative. Obviously, this is, you know, a great sort of visual opener. Uh, that said, it really felt to me more like the beginning of a feature film than the teaser, especially because we're going to be spending upwards of 10 minutes uh, in this long sequence without a single word being said. Uh, now, obviously, that's very ambitious, not just because of uh, the scale and the fact that this is a pure piece, but on the page of it all, um, I do feel like that could be a potential risk in one way or the other, where you have 10 minutes of a TV episode without any single word being uttered. Uh, and that as being the teaser of this entire show can be a very hard sell. Yeah, I agree. I think that it feels different on the page than it will on the screen. And 10 minutes is a long time for that. And I think that you do need a reason why this whole thing is silent, not just doing it for the artifice of it, you know, because every time there's a silent episode, like Hush and Buffy or whatever, everyone's like, oh my God, this is so cool and so well-written. Yes, it's a challenge in and of itself, but there should also be some sort of reason for your storytelling as to why it's all silent. And there were moments here where it would have made more logical sense for them to speak to each other and they didn't. And so I wonder if that's kind of being forced onto it. And even outside of the narrative of it all, I feel like you need some kind of emotional punch to that whole sequence. Because if you think of all the classic openers that are uh, mostly silent and notable the opening of Up, where you see sort of that montage of that life between those two characters. There's this emotional payoff that happens in that short sequence that I don't believe really exists as it stands, because the, the payoff is obviously the baby. However, the whole sequence isn't about the two missionaries wanting to have a kid. That's heavily implied, but that's not what the whole sequence is about, as opposed to Up, which the whole sequence is about the life of these two characters. So watch out for some kind of payoff to warrant that silent device. Yeah, I agree. I think that if you'd kind of built up the emotion and the tension and the silence to the point where we discover something, you know, that she's infertile or whatever, and then they can never have kids, then maybe that would have been a way to go about it. And then later on, they discover the baby or something. But it did kind of feel like the ending, although interesting with this whole baby being discovered in this ritual and whatever, didn't feel like a one big build to a moment that pays off because of the sequence. It was just the sequence happened to be silent. And then here's the hook. You know? And there are a few elements that can be removed from that sequence to craft it and really hone in on those two characters wanting to have a child or at least having the images of those moments being present throughout the entire teaser, especially the baptisms of it all. There's a few moments that are more about the villagers than they are about Evelyn and Norman. And so if you sort of remove those moments or maybe leave them to later and really focus on those two uh, as a couple and as future parents potentially or wanting children, then I feel like that really is going to push this to another level. Right. The pieces are all there. They just need to be slotted together in the right way and the most effective way. Do you have any micro notes or thoughts about the page? There were a couple of little things that might just be like personal pet peeves of mine, but I felt that every now and then there was a little bit too much cap and underlining like to, to highlight a point. I think that 
you know, you don't want to overuse that stuff because then the meaning starts to be diluted a little bit. It wasn't egregious or anything like that, but uh, I just noticed a couple of them in a row and I, I felt like it was already good enough at communicating the description and the action that we didn't need to really throw stuff at the audience's face over and over again, you know, the caps and the underlines. And one other little thing was like making a note in the description, a symbol that will be important later. I know people do it all the time, but for me, that kind of like takes me more out of the read than it, it helps me. Like I'll probably remember the symbol, like when the symbol comes up again, you couldn't say then the symbol from earlier in the teaser or from the woman at the beginning or whatever. I'm fine with that. But saying this will be important later just feels weird to me. I feel like it ties back to what we've been saying about honing in on those characters and what is the real focus of this teaser? Is it about this extensive sequence of these missionaries visiting this village? Or is it about two people struggling to have a child and being surrounded in this magical world where potentially they could have a child? I feel like that's really the dynamic at play here. And that's the emotion that you want to lean in. All right. Well, that wraps up our penultimate paper tease session. And now on to some TV writing news. All right, let's get started with uh, some latest TV running news. And the first one is an article on Vulture titled, Why Isn't Law and Order Streaming Anywhere? Uh, and if you haven't read the article, essentially this writer try to uncover the mystery of why Law & Order is one of the only classic 90 show not being streamed because you have ER, Friends, Seinfeld, X-Files, even Law & Order spinoff SVU. All those shows are being available on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, but not the original Law & Order. Sounds like a case to be solved. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's a little bit of a spoiler. Essentially, the article explains that because Law & Order is a show that isn't serialized, it's very episodic. Uh, there's less of a value to Netflix and those streaming services to pay uh, the premium of streaming and getting the rights to these hundreds and hundreds of episodes because most people are not incentivized to stream Law & Order back to back to back to back, unlike Friends, which as we discussed uh, in previous episodes, has a lot of plot-driven storylines and arcs throughout the show, but Law and Order is very much uh, independent. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's kind of like taking what was once the strength of episodic TV for regular networks and syndication, the fact that they could run the episodes out of order whenever they wanted and people could tune in and enjoy a self-contained episode. Now, as we transfer across to really a streaming dominant kind of landscape, these shows are now less valuable because they don't have that binge factor. Absolutely. And I feel like it's specifically in this case, it's very interesting because most TV used to be linear, right? It's sort of like you have the TV in the background and there's law and order reruns in the background while you do some dishes, uh, while you clean your oven or whatever else you do, laundry. I don't know. <laughs> what do you do? I'm going <laughs> to list all the chores. Uh, but anyway, uh, as opposed to now where you have something like Netflix and Hulu and all those OTT services where you are uh, supposed to proactively choose what you want to watch, right? That's the whole point is you're the one deciding what you want to watch when you want to watch it. And nobody's going really choose law and order over even something like friends or something that's uh, less uh, of a strain well that's interesting because i feel like quite often there are like kind of two kinds of shows one where you really want to be sitting down and invested in the plot and seeing what's going on and the other one you kind of want to be half paying attention to while you're doing something else but you just want something on in the background so i think there is room for those kind of shows to exist on streaming platforms oh i definitely agree i wasn't saying that the room doesn't exist case in point friends is one of those examples i'm just saying that 
Law and Order specifically wouldn't be the kind of show that you would proactively choose as opposed to something like Friends. Uh, and that's why Law and Order was so successful on uh, marathons on linear TV is because most people just put the, you know, TNT, whatever, A&E, whatever network you choose and have those shows in the background as opposed to now where uh, very few people are going to actively go on Netflix to look up Law and Order yeah, to watch those episodes. Sure. I feel like that's the key difference as opposed to something like Seinfeld and Friends and even ER are arguably, which has its own uh, issues. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think that there has been uh, certainly a trend in sitcoms these days to have an element of serialization. And perhaps that will help those last the test of time a little bit longer as we transition to streaming now. Yeah. And the article ends with this idea that perhaps the most likely path for law and order to enter the streaming landscape is through an ad-supported streaming platform, something like Comcast's new service that is going to allegedly be launching next year, because that's a bit of a different way of monetizing that show as opposed to something like Friends, where Netflix had to pay hundreds of millions of dollars just to stream that show, whereas Law & Order doesn't really warrant that kind of money. Yeah, absolutely. I could see it thriving on an online streaming service that is able to cater specific advertising to that specific demographic of perhaps older people, more of a CBS kind of crowd. Right. And looking at the way uh, OTTs have changed syndication, what are some more TV news? Yeah. So another interesting one kind of flowing on from this is uh, the fate of The Simpsons. And there's an interesting article in Variety about this, you know, questioning what will happen to The Simpsons as Disney takes over from Fox. And it basically kind of goes on to discuss the fact that uh, for the longest time, Fox Network, which The Simpsons is broadcast on, and Fox TV studios were part of the same company. And so their profits were all vertical and there was no issues with that. But now as Disney is taking over the studio side of that, but is actually unable to purchase the Fox network because of sort of antitrust laws and whatever, there's less and less incentive for the Fox network side to keep broadcasting The Simpsons because it's an incredibly expensive show. You have all this talent you have to keep paying. It's in its 30-something year, so the overheads are huge, and they're not making that money back on the studio side. They're just paying licensing fees straight out. Yeah, it's also not just from the Fox perspective, but also from the Disney perspective because all those uh, companies, like the Fox broadcasting company, they want to milk the show as much as they can. And so as it stands, because of the deals they have in place in terms of the syndication with FX and all those different networks, they cannot milk the cow as much as they can. And I think that's the key question is once the show is over, then at that point they can move to phase two of The Simpsons and really <laughs> expand and uh, dominate the world. Totally. And so like the part of the reason for this is because they made those first, first broadcast syndication deals back in the early 1990s. They were kind of exclusive and fairly like they would just run in perpetuity until that broadcast network stopped deciding to run it and no one else could really get in on that until Fox stops deciding to run it. They had to get a special legal exception to be able to even put it on FX, which is part of the same company. And it was like a $750 million deal to do that. Now, if Fox Broadcasting were to walk away from the program and there are talks that perhaps they're going to be giving it at least two more seasons on that network and then they'll be evaluating things from there. But if Fox were to walk away, it would suddenly open up so many more different avenues to Disney to monetize it and make another huge billion dollar deal at some other sort of service or network to stream that or even to use it as one of the kind of uh, real draws of their new streaming services like the new Disney Plus or even Hulu. Yeah, one of the options in terms of streaming 
something that I was reading about that was interesting was this idea of breaking up this run of 700 <laughs> plus episodes into chunks of 300 episodes, uh, specifically because they can then monetize each chunk of episode differently than the other ones, uh, which is very interesting because The Simpsons, even though it's not serialized, they definitely have different phases, all right? Like you, you have the earlier seasons that are considered by many to be better than the later seasons or the middle seasons. And the later seasons now, I guess, are making a comeback as being slightly better than their previous ones. So it's funny to see what is being considered more valuable than the other. Right. And I th- it, there's already something of that going on in the fact that Hulu will play the latest I don't know, two or three seasons of The Simpsons, or maybe just the current one. But if you want to get the whole back catalog of The Simpsons, you need to be on FXX and have your whole subscription for that. So I think it would be interesting to see what kind of dollar value they put on, say, seasons one to 10 as compared to 10 to 20 to to 20 to 30. I think obviously one to 10 is going to be the most uh, revered and valuable piece that people would be actually paying good money to tune in and see. But I, I guess kind of in summary for this, it's interesting because the Fox network is undergoing a pretty radical shift with this whole Disney thing and losing their studio side. If they were to lose the Simpsons as well, which has been such a huge part of the identity of the network for so many years, what do they really have left at that point? It's sort of like sports and news and maybe some, some multicams or something. But, you know, I think that ultimately it's going to be a really interesting period of change in time for Fox. And this is uh, one of the big pieces of that. Absolutely. I feel like they're going to move towards, and this is something that we discussed in the podcast previously, the only option really for Fox to monetize itself outside of creating original content is to move towards live events, which is what they've been doing proactively. They've been mostly focusing on sports. And so that's why there's diminishing uh, amount of original content that they're being produced, especially this season. You can definitely see a trend as opposed to a couple of years ago. Yeah. And there's definitely a focus on new reality shows like The Masked Singer and even live musical events. They just did Rent Live. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how much scripted content really stays on Fox as a network. Yeah. And uh, speaking of The Simpsons, there was an article that I will link in the show notes, uh, much like all the other articles that we're discussing in this episode, about The Critic and specifically the reason why The Critic failed 25 years ago and why, even though it failed, it has become sort of this cult show. So if you're not familiar with The Critic, it was a show in the mid-90s by Simpsons showrunners uh, Al Jean and Mike Rice, as well as, you know, in the writer's room, there were a lot of other famous people like John Apatow and John Lovitz uh, as the main voice of the critic. Now, in terms of the show itself, it was very niche and <laughs> not uh, really successful, even on a critical level. It was panned. And that's mostly because in the early 90s, that kind of sort of New York-y, dry, anti-hero humor uh, wasn't really prevalent until Seinfeld came along. And that was much later that it uh, sort of drew that success that the critic needed to survive. So that whole article is a very interesting look at the rise and fall of the critic as a show uh, in the mid-90s and what others can learn from it, much like Arrested Development learned its own lesson in the early 2000s as being uh, something that was a little bit too ahead of its time. Right. And they did actually do a crossover episode with The Simpsons at one point where (laughs) the critic comes to Springfield and Marge has a whole thing with him. So it's uh, it's interesting. That was uh, probably one of the worst episodes. That was actually, it's, I yeah, feel like if I remember correctly, that was not something that, forget who it was, but one of the writers was not very happy with the critic being <laughs> a crossover event with The Simpsons. But anyway. Uh, the next piece of news we have or interesting stuff 
stuff to talk about. Every time around this year, around staffing season, there's always a lot of sage advice from the working writers and showrunners out there on Twitter. And they'll have these great Twitter threads where they kind of dispense really useful information for people. And so the latest one is from Gloria Calderon Kellett, who is the showrunner of One Day at a Time and has you know done a whole bunch of other stuff, obviously. But she's done a couple of threads about pilots and staffing and another one about writers uh, after they turn in the script, the way to kind of carry themselves. And Yeah, I really appreciate both of those threads uh, for very different reasons. The writer threads and the staffing thread is really more about sort of the, the mindset of entering that season without feeling overwhelmed by failure, essentially. Whereas the second thread is mostly about the pilots that you are yourself creating and trying to sell not being picked up and sort of how to deal with that mindset. Now, obviously, uh, most of our listeners are not necessarily in that second category. However, I would still recommend reading both of the threads because they do serve a lot of valuable advice uh, in terms of how to behave yourself and uh, strive through those times. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the one that will be most immediately relevant to our listeners is the one about pilots and staffing, particularly about stuff like making sure you're keeping up with the news and reading the trades, knowing what pilots are coming out, trying to track down those scripts if you can online, and just making yourself generally aware of what's going on, especially if you uh, are thinking, you know, if you have reps, or even if not, you might have a chance to staff on some of these shows, you should be really knowing what's out there. And then just also the kind of like, I guess, protocol of how to act around showrunners and other writers if you meet them at an event and what to do and what not to do, I think is really useful advice. And lastly, I did want to mention that the BBC has released multiple Doctor Who scripts on their very detailed online script library. So I'll link again that in the show notes, but essentially they released multiple of the latest Doctor Who scripts, including ones from this past season with our new uh, Jody as uh, the lead doctor. So check that out on the show notes. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, opportunities, and merch, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for tuning in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash one, two, three. Nice. Easy as ABC. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? So next week, we're going to be talking to Gretchen Enders, who has been a writer for Grace and Frankie, Queen America, Gordon McGibbons, as well as a number of radio plays. So we'll be discussing her career on the podcast. Which is basically like radio. <laughs> Does that make us writers of radio plays? Ooh, in a way, yes. Why not? Uh, we should send uh, this episode to the Rise Guild. <laughs> so we'll send it to the BBC, see if they'll do one of those ones with like Neil Gaiman and narrating. All right, let's not get out ahead of ourselves. <laughs> All right, see you next week. See you guys later.